program. Thank you for joining us. I'm Tennessee World Affairs Council President Patrick Ryan. Today we will follow up on a conversation with Ambassador John Kornblum on the Ukraine crisis. You can find the January 17th video and transcript on our website at tnwac.org. Uh, just uh, for those who are not familiar with World Affairs Council, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is a nonprofit educational association based in Nashville that works to bring programs like this to our community. Our speakers program is our community outreach effort. We also work closely with high schools and colleges to help inform and inspire young people about what's going on in the world. So thanks to those who registered and uh, contributed uh, through the sign-in page. Uh, anyone else is welcome to uh, make a gift to the World Affairs Council at tnwac.org slash donate. Now, uh, on to our important topic today. We've uh, been uh, blessed with having a terrific uh, panel today uh, led by Ambassador John Kornblum. Ambassador Kornblum has a long record of service in the United States and Europe, both as a diplomat and a businessman. He is recognized as an eminent expert on U.S.-European political and economic relations, in particular in Central and Eastern Europe. He served as the U.S. Ambassador to Germany from 1997 to 2001. Before that, he occupied a number of high-level diplomatic posts, including U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Special Envoy for the Dayton Peace Process, U.S. Ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Deputy U.S. Ambassador to NATO, and U.S. Minister and Deputy Commandant of Forces in Divided Berlin. We're also joined by Dr. Liana Fix. She is a resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Washington office while on sabbatical from the International Affairs Department of the Kober uh, Foundation in Berlin. She's a political scientist and historian and her work focuses on Russia and Eastern Europe, European security, arms control, and German foreign policy. Our moderator today is Dr. Stephen Sokol. He is the president of the American Council on Germany. Previously, he served as president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Pittsburgh. And prior to that, he was the vice president and director of programs at the American Council on Germany. Earlier in his career, Steve served as the deputy director of the Aspen Institute Berlin, was the head of the project management department at the Bonn International Center for Conversion and a program officer in the Berlin office of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Now onto our important program. I remind you to please uh, start your questions early and put them in the uh, uh, Q&A tab on the, your Zoom screen. Now we thank uh, our, uh, our guests for joining us today. And we uh, welcome Ambassador Kornblum joining us from Berlin, Dr. Sokol joining us from New York City, and Dr. Fix joining us from Washington, D.C. Dr. Sokol. Well, Pat, thank you so much. Uh, the ACG is delighted to partner again with the Tennessee World Affairs Council. It is always a pleasure to work with you. And as you know, because of my relationship with the World Affairs Councils, uh, having uh, run the council in Pittsburgh, I, I really appreciate the work that you are doing in Nashville and that the network of World Affairs Councils is doing to, to have an educated and informed um, population in the US about foreign policy and why foreign policy matters. So Patrick, it is great to be to be back in Nashville with you and, and I could not be happier to be leading today's conversation. I'm also happy to welcome John Kornblum in Berlin and Liana Fix in Washington DC. I think it's, it's terrific to have 
an American in Germany and a German in the United States <laughs> to talk about the subject at hand. Um, and I really look forward to today's uh, important conversation. Each day, the path to a diplomatic solution with Russia over Ukraine seems to be narrowing. And things came to a head yesterday in a pretty public confrontation between Russia and the United States at the UN Security Council. Uh, of course, today, Secretary of State Tony Blinken will speak with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. And next week, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz will visit, it, will visit Washington DC and speak with Joe Biden. And Russia will be at the top of the agenda. One of the key questions in many people's minds and the main focus of today's conversation is how reliable a partner Germany is in addressing the tensions with Russia over Ukraine. John, as, as Pat Ryan said, many members and friends of the ACG and, and the Tennessee World Affairs Council had the opportunity to hear from you last month when you provided some very important historic context for the current crisis and really tried to, to flesh out um, the evolving situation. But I'd like to start by getting your take on where we are now and on the German response. Thanks, Steve. My great pleasure to be here again and uh, very happy to be with Liada and uh, with you in discussing what has turned out unexpectedly for some people, I guess, to, to be a major issue that I'm sure the Biden administration didn't have it way up on the top of its agenda when they took office a year or so ago. Why is this the case? The case is that not that NATO threatens Russia. If I may make one little uh, advertisement for NATO here, if you look at the NATO website, you will find a section which calls um, five myths debunked, which is an interesting word to use in a international organization, but it's in other words, refuting Russian arguments. And uh, NATO is not surrounding Russia. Russia is such a big country. NATO even is just a little pinprick on the, on the Western part of the country. And NATO has not been trying to undermine Russian security for, for many years. But I think the most important thing that when we're talking about Germany is to remind our American watchers and listeners that Russia is a major factor in the consciousness and in the sense of stability of Europeans, not just Germans, but of Europeans. Uh, Russia is relatively close, about seven, 800 miles away from the, from the, from the German border, at least. It is uh, not a major power anymore in the sense that it was during the Cold War, but it is still a very important country. And since it maintains very strong military forces, and in particular has its nuclear deterrence still in force, which is over 2,000 warheads, as far as I know. Uh, it is a force to reckon with, and it is even more so a psychological force to reckon with, with Europeans. And this is not just Germany. But when we do talk about Germany, we um, have to understand the fact that there is a special corner of the German psychology for Russia. There's no doubt about that. And it is not a corner which is shared with almost anyone else in Europe. It is so deeply in, in, entwined with the history between Russia and Germany, with the history of the 20th century, with the history of World War II, 
And with the, shall we call it the socialization that not only Germans, but Europeans have enjoyed, I would say, but undertaken in the years since 1990 when the Cold War was over. Uh, I have publicly myself spoken out against the term Europe is a peace project or the EU is a peace project because I think it's a it's a deadening factor. It's a backward looking identity of Europe at a time when Europe needs to be looking forward. But the fact is that World War II was a, I would say, a, uh, a trauma inducing event for Europe a trauma which is still there and a trauma which causes Europeans to look at and to deal with Russia in a different way than Americans do. That's simply the fact. Russia, if you take away the Cold War, which was a war in, in many sense, the United States and Russia have actually never been enemies. We were allies in World War II. We didn't, we were, we didn't, we fought for Russian interests in World War I. And, uh, some people don't know this, but Russia actually helped us out in the Civil War and in the Revolutionary War. Not, not major, but still did. So Russia has never been our enemy. I can tell you, I worked for 40 or more years with Russians, mostly in Berlin. And we, were, we never saw each other as enemies. We saw each other managing a common task of maintaining stability in a post-war Europe, which was not stable. And we, in fact, succeeded. Uh, and uh, but for Europeans, it's a different story. They see Russia as a threat. They also are not necessarily attuned to Russia's goals. And so, unfortunately, as part of this definition of Europe as a peace process, the approach to Russia has been one of dialogue and, shall we say, peace. And as Liana knows, the SPD calls its security policy the SPD's peace policy. And it, you can look back to philosophers going back to the 18th century who say if somebody puts peace as his first goal, he is going to lose out because peace is in the end something which you cannot maintain unless you're also willing to risk war. And so this is leads up to your question, is Germany a reliable ally? Well, Germany is very reliable. It's had the same approach to things for 60 years. And, and those of us who were there can go over the 60 years and show you how Germany's approach to, shall we say, conflict in Europe or conflict with Russia has never been much different than it is now. There was a major change with the Brand uh, Ostpolitik now 50 years ago. But even before that, the Germans were less interested in confrontation with the Russians than others were. So. This is not a question of Germany somehow becoming a weak or a bad ally. It's more a question perhaps of the Western allies in not quite understanding the psychology that Germany has and the way it will approach such issues. The way it will approach such issues is to stay away from conf conflict, to seek um, consultations and seek consensus whenever possible, and try very hard to influence the alliance to deal with Russia as a political diplomatic issue rather than a military issue. And I see we, we don't need to go into detail. We can see that happening right now. Well, John, let me let me push you on, on at least one thing um, before we bring Liana into the, the conversation. And, and that is, um, of course, the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine is not something new. It's not something that's just evolved 
um, over the right, past few right. weeks with the, the amassing of, of tens of thousands of troops uh, along the border uh, with Ukraine. It's, it's something that has gone on since 2014. Um, and yet, you know, I, I find myself sort of wondering why Putin seems to be creating this artificial crisis right now. Um, yeah. is, is, is that something that you can, you can share your thoughts on? Well, I could pull out 200 newspaper articles that I've seen recently, and you get different analyses of it. I would say the following. The Russia-Ukraine conflict is not eight years old or 20 years old. It's 300 years old. And Ukrainians have been fighting for their independence from Russia again and again since really at least uh, the early 18th century, maybe before that. Uh, if you quote the, the, the Ukrainian president, if Russia says that they and Ukraine were part of the original Rus, which was a thousand years ago, well, then the Ukrainian flag should be flying over Moscow. And so the Ukrainians, and I can tell you this, I should probably say this, uh, Patrick knows this as full disclosure. My wife is the daughter of Ukrainian uh, war refugees. She speaks Russian, Ukrainian. She has spent the last years, much of the time for the OSCE in Ukraine. So I, I have a feeling for what's going on there as well. Uh, it, is not, it is not a, um, a difficult uh, question to see that there has been conflict there and that Russia has sought to use Ukraine either as a support of things such as the Soviet Union or as a point of, uh, of uh, conflict in these years now after 1990. And I'll make one final point. We shouldn't forget, and to be totally open about it, that in, I've now forgotten the month, in 1991, I think it was, President George H.W. Bush made what has been what later was called his Chicken Kiev speech in trying to convince the Ukrainians not to seek independence from Russia. We shouldn't deny that fact. But the fact is, the reason that that speech fell very fast with a thud was that a large, large majority of Ukrainians wanted independence and nobody was listening to him. And even the Ukrainians in the Eastern provinces, which are now occupied by Russia, uh, over 50% wanted independence. In the Western provinces, it was like 99%, but in the Eastern provinces, even there, it was, it was uh, over 50%. And we shouldn't forget that if you take a map of Ukraine and impose it on Western Europe, it goes all the way from the Belarus border to the Atlantic. It's Europe's largest country without, except for Russia. So it is a major factor for Russia, and it is going to be a major factor in European structures in the incoming in years. But right now, that is a long way of answering your question, why is Putin now turning this into a conflict? There are many reasons which we could go into, but I think probably his major one is that he's worried that his entire near abroad, as he sometimes calls it, is turning democratic. The entire near abroad wants to be a member of the West and a member of NATO and not a member of the Russian CIS or whatever it's called now. And uh, also that he sees that his situation at home is not the best. And he's tried to, uh, I think, use these, uh, uh, the pressure that these things offer to get into a different kind of dialogue with the West, a dialogue which recognizes whatever Russia considers its 
most important uh, concerns to be right now. So, I mean, obviously, um, he has gotten the West's attention, um, he did. and he did uh, and and certainly, um, you know, there there have been um, opportunities for dialogue, and and the the diplomatic approach is the one that that is is front and center. Um, but I'd, I'd now like to bring um, Liana into the conversation because, of course, um, the crisis over Ukraine is um, the first big foreign policy crisis for the new German government in Berlin, um, not, you know, barely 50 days into, into office. Um, and it seems as if the German government has not really been able to address this crisis with a unified voice. Um, John just outlined in, in, in broad brushstrokes that, that Germany is a reliable partner. And yet, um, certainly what a lot of us have been reading in the press has been questionable in terms of what Germany has been able to do um, to address this crisis. And, and you, Liana, in, in some recent articles and some interviews um, have outlined why we should not underestimate Germany at this time. Um, can you tell us why uh, we can expect more from Germany? Yeah, thank you so much, Stephen. I will also try to do the difficult job of defending while at the same time criticizing Germany. And I think there are perhaps three, three points that I would like to make to explain Germany's stance and also to explain why it is too early to write Berlin off and basically to conclude that Germany has, has abandoned the transatlantic alliance. I think John has um, very nicely uh, laid out the special um, historical connection between Germany and Russia that has been there in the past. Um, and which is true, Germans remain thankful for German unification. They have a very special bond towards Gorbachev and this part of Germany's history. But at the same time, since 2014, we have seen a process of disillusionment, not only within the Berlin elite, within the Berlin foreign policy elite, and with 2014, I mean, the first crisis, the annexation of Crimea and the destabilization of Eastern Ukraine. This was a shock to Berlin policymakers. And that's this is not exaggerated. It was a shock because Berlin's approach was always, well, if we work together with Russia and if we get closer to Russia, we will prevent Russia to act um, outside the rules of the game. So 2014 was a big shock. It was a realization that um, Russia is willing to use military means. Um, so there was um, a good chance that Berlin would not want to undermine um, the transatlantic alliance and also would not want to underestimate Russia's ability to act militarily twice. The wake-up call that they had in 2014 was quite strong. So since 2014, this process of disillusionment has continued. Um, and it went through all parties, apart from the fringe parties in Germany. It also went through the Social Democratic Party, which in 2014 was led by now the federal president of Germany. What we see now, and you alluded to this, Stephen, is that we have a new coalition government in Berlin, which is just in power, and which is for the first time a three-party coalition government in Berlin. So this is a historically new constellation 
which makes it even more difficult for Berlin at the moment to find a unified voice. We have the Greens in the coalition agreement, which have been very outspoken on Russia. They have a very strong human rights focus. We have, we have the Social Democratic Party that has always been a supporter of Nord Stream 2. So for the Social Democratic Party at the moment, as the chancellor does to say, every option is on the table, which means translated Nord Stream 2 is also on the table. This has already been quite a step. And then we also have the liberals in, in the coalition. So we have inner party fighting about the right Russia approach. We have infighting between the coalition parties. I'm saying this to sort of explain that some of the confusing signals out from Berlin also relate to Berlin domestic developments. But then there's also another responsibility which is special to Germany and which also um, makes the case for Germany stepping up, which is sort of securing stability in its neighborhood. Germany has been in the comfortable position that EU and NATO enlargement, which Germany always supported, created a wing of France and stability around Germany. So Germany is surrounded by EU and NATO countries, and it doesn't have to fear or to sort of um, all of the security fears that Germany had throughout the Cold War have been in the past resolved through this very comfortable position in the middle of Europe. And this is again why Germany has not only a special relationship or had a special relationship and responsibility towards Russia, but also has a special relationship and responsibility towards the East. And if we look at the um, last crisis in 2014, Angela Merkel stepped up very much back then, but again, she was in power for a longer period of time than Olaf Scholz now is. So this is to say there are reasons that explain why Germany is not stepping up in the same way as it has done in 2014. It is not about Germany abandoning the transatlantic alliance, there are domestic reasons to it, but at the same time, and we just got the news today that Britain, Poland and the UK think about a security alliance. We have Macron in Paris, who is doing a lot of calls with the Russian president. So at the same time, as Germany is rather quiet, um, we see a fracturing of the debates going on in, in Europe beyond sort of the European Union member states. And that is something which is worrisome that Germany in the past was very good at keeping everyone together. And the third and my very last point before I finish here is um, the question of Germany's historical lessons that Germany has drawn from its past was something that was also debated quite intensely in the last two weeks when it came to the question of weapon deliveries. The United States delivers defensive weapons, the UK does, Estonia was also planning to do so. And within Germany, um, escalate, um, uh, delivering weapons to Ukraine, defensive weapons, is very much perceived by the German public as contributing to escalation rather than a moral duty to do so. Um, but the problem here is that if you use Germany's historical lessons, as the foreign minister has done due to Germany's historical lessons, we cannot agree weapon deliveries, it becomes to a certain extent arbitrary how you use your history to explain your policy decisions. And that has been a point of criticism, which I think is fair. Germany has to be careful with the moral uh, arguments it makes out of its history, um, because they can also there could also be an argument to support Ukraine um, due to Germany's history. Let me make a point here and then we continue. 
Sorry, I, I muted myself because there were honking New York street horns uh, in the in the background, uh, and I, I forgot for a moment. Um, Liana, thank you. Let me let me ask a, a follow up question, which comes from from one of our viewers, um, which is: do, do you think that um, the the German government would have responded differently to this crisis if Angela Merkel were still chancellor? I think she had a position in 2014, as she was already in power for a couple of years, that allowed her more leeway. We see at the moment that Chancellor Scholz is very cautious, not only when it comes to Russia policy or foreign policy, but to many issues um, also sort of on the domestic agenda. So it seems that he's still growing into this role. And if we look at the um, sort of at the, at the personal level, Merkel had a special connection to the East. She was an East German, she spoke Russian. That's also why her special, um, yeah, her ability to talk to the Russian president was, was crucial. This is something with what the, something that the new German chancellor doesn't have this sort of background um, in the East. Um, so it explains perhaps a little bit why it takes more time for German, the German government and the chancellor, hopefully um, more time in terms of they will come along in the longer term, but why it takes them more time to, um, to step up in their efforts. Thank you. I, I'd now like to bring in a, a couple of um, viewer questions to both of you that, that sort of have more to do with, with geography and, and geopolitics, if you will. Um, Tom Schwartz, who, who moderated the, the last conversation in, in mid-January with, with you, John, uh, writes, to what extent do you think Putin aims to create an alternative Ukraine and an East Ukraine, so to speak? similar to the division of Germany during the Cold War. Would such a division of Ukraine provide prove to be viable? And would the West, particularly Germany, remain united in such a scenario? Yes, well, Tom is talking, of course, about a, so I call it a slip that President Biden made a week or so ago in which he said exactly, it would be hard to maintain Western solidarity with such a solution. Hard to say, of course, uh, but but that kind of solution is one that um, might be seem attractive to him because it, it, it's probably one which wouldn't cause the entire reaction of the West. I again, nobody knows what he's going to do, but I think he will be wrong if he believes that if he just were to sort of snap off a couple of provinces, or there's another theory that he will take the Balk the Black Sea coast of Mariupol and uh, do that. I think he will underestimate the. Um, the success he's had in building a, Euro a Ukrainian national identity, the determination of your, your Ukrainians not to become a satellite, if you will, of Russia, and also the fact that he has other countries to deal with, the, the so-called near abroad. His goal, I, I agree with those who say that his goal is, is certainly not to rebuild the Soviet Union, but I think what he wants is a sphere of influence. He wants countries who are, feel beholden to Russia, and he wants Ukraine in particular to be in that category. And so I think he's going to have to do something. Uh, he, in a way, if you look at it, he's, he's, he's painted himself into a corner right now. He's not getting the kind of um, uh, reaction that he hoped for maybe in Ukraine. At the same time, he's put himself in this position that if he doesn't do something militarily, he'll look rather weak and rather like he's been pushed away from the, from the leadership. 
So I think that he's, he must be worried about that and must be thinking about what he can do. In other words, it's not up to us now to, to, to sit back and say, well, he's not going to really do anything. We just don't know what's going to happen. But I don't think he has any good options because this case, and I mentioned my own ties to Ukraine, he has in fact created a very strong Ukrainian national identity, which uh, some people would say w wasn't there eight years ago when he uh, grabbed uh, Crimea. So he's, he's, he's in a way he's put himself in a box and I'm not sure how he's gonna get out of it. I'm worried that he will choose a violent solution which will be difficult for all of us to deal with. So, so maybe as a, as a follow-up to that, to, to Liana, we have a, a question from Pittsburgh, which, which relates to this, which is um, that Russia has well-established territorial ambitions in Ukraine. NATO is a collective security agreement that never had such territorial ambitions. How does Putin justify fear of NATO altogether? And why would Russia fear extending NATO into Ukraine unless Putin is trying to reestablish some sort of a, a Soviet Republic in Ukraine. Thank you, Stephen. And I think this relates to the question that we had before, the question about why now? Um, so first about the, the Eastern part of Ukraine, is that what the Russian president wants? There are different scenarios what he could achieve and Michael Kimmich and I have tried to lay this out in a GMF paper, but the question with a scenario that would be a small incursion, as the president says, in Eastern Ukraine, the so-called People's Republic that are there right now, extending this influence a little bit. The question really is, why doing that? Because the Kremlin already now has an influence over Ukraine's foreign and security policy because they already control the People's Republics there. So if it is just about having a say about Ukraine's foreign policy orientation, that is already the case. Um, and uh, Ukraine will never become a NATO member with um, the, the conflict with the conflict in the East. Um, and what we have seen in, in the last weeks and months has been that um, Moscow has become frustrated with, um, the, with the sort of with the initial hope that President Zelensky would make more concessions towards Russia and would actually grant um, far-reaching autonomy to the so-called people's republics. So the question is, is the design now just to have a stake into Ukraine's future or is the design now really to control Ukraine's future in terms of having a government in Kiev which is Russia friendly? And if the aim is to establish a government in Kiev which is Russia friendly, then this would include quite wide-ranging military scenarios to achieve this. Um, including in, uh, installing a, a puppet regime in Kiev, which would require an extensive um, invasion. So at the moment, it seems that Russia's designs are basically preventing any way that Ukraine does not only get close to NATO, and I think we've been almost too focused on the NATO part of this, because there's also the EU part. And if we look back at 2014, the conflict about um, the annexation of Crimea broke out because Ukraine wanted to sign an association agreement with the EU. It was not about NATO. So it's not only about NATO enlargement, NATO expansion, the question of promises that have been made in the past. It really is about Russia and the president, um, the Russian president has said this himself in his July 24, uh, uh, um, 
uh, article in July last year that he wrote, Ukraine's sovereignty can only be secured in partnership with Russia. So it really is about a broader ambition for Ukraine being a part of a Russian sphere, not necessarily Soviet, because that's obviously not the ideology that we have anymore, but to be part of, 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 a, part of a Russian sphere there. Um, and the question really is, what are the costs that from Moscow's perspective are deemed acceptable to achieve this goal? And also we have to ask ourselves whether the cost benefit analysis that is done in Moscow is perhaps not completely different to the cost benefit analysis that we have because the, there's much less willingness obviously to use military power in the West. Um, and we mentioned sort of the question of war and peace before in our discussion. To be honest, also if we look at Germany, not only Germany, but everyone, including the United States and the UK said that they will not go to war over Ukraine. So there will be no troops, no Western troops whatsoever on Ukrainian territory to defend Ukraine. Um, that is a red line that has been drawn very clearly by all, by all members. So the, the stakes that the West puts into Ukraine are um, not as high as the stakes that Russia puts into Ukraine because with 100,000 troops on the border, Russia is obviously willing to put troops um, uh, to achieve this political goal. So, so Leon, I'm, I'm happy that you brought up the, the role of the EU in, in all of this, because on Friday, we hosted a discussion with Bundestag member Metin Hakverdi from the SPD, who had just returned from a trip to Kiev and Warsaw. Um, and in our conversation, he was saying that he thinks that the EU has a much more important role to play than the UN. Um, in trying to address this crisis right now. And the, the question that I asked him and that I'd like to ask both of you right now is, will the EU rise to the challenge? Will the EU take this on? I think it's there's one area where the EU really can make a difference. And that's obviously the, um, the deterrence scenario, the sanctions scenario, because sanctions towards Russia, and we've seen this in 2014, would be a burden that the European Union has to carry. Um, not only the United States has also announced quite wide ranging sanctions that they plan to put into effect, but the European Union would have to take a significant part of this. And again, agree among all member states on the level of sanctions policy that would be implemented. Um, that's but I think everyone is clear on that role that the EU should play. The other question really is um, what role can the EU play in the security part in crisis management and resolving the crisis right now? And there we see the same pattern that we've seen in 2014, that it's basically EU member states that act. It is Germany, it is France within the, new, within the Normandy format, but not EU institutions that have been involved or EU representatives. So there's no institutional role of the EU. And while having sort of the EU behind their back strengthens Germany's and France's position, it does not strengthen the EU institutionally sort of vice versa. Um, and that has been part of the criticism that has been raised by the high representative Borrell who wanted to have um, uh, sort of a seat at the table, but also Borrell had a difficult um, time when he was in Moscow the last time, so he was not able to portray the EU 
in the strong way that he actually wanted to. He had a very difficult conversation with Lavrov. So this is really an area where member states are at the forefront um, and where the EU as an institution, also in this couple of meetings that we had in the last weeks, um, has not been present perhaps as strongly as it wished to be. John, what are, what are your thoughts on, on whether the EU can, can address this challenge? Well, I have spent uh, many years working on <clears throat> European security with the EU and in NATO. And I'm sorry to say I've come to the uh, conclusion that the European Union is dysfunctional on these issues. It just doesn't work. And uh, the EU made a very major mistake in the early 1990s in not joining with us to build NATO as the strong joint security structure, but they did. They were had stars in their eyes in those years. They thought they were going to achieve everything. And it's turned out that the EU has no global security or even economic personality is not going to have one. And Liana is right that individual states have to come up and take up the slack, except the individual states never agree with each other. And there certainly is no agreement between Germany and France on any of this right now. Uh, but let's not turn it only on to Europe. It's also an American problem. I'm a big critic, I have been, and I will continue to be, of the foreign policy of the Obama administration. When the Russians moved in and took uh, Crimea, the Germans in particular wanted the United States to be part of the Normandy format, and President Obama wasn't interested. And I can remember, I, I won't quote anybody, but I can remember high-level people telling me in those days, doesn't he understand this is too much for us? We need the United States here to give this some balance. But um, increasingly, already beginning with the Bush, second Bush administration, the United States has been neglecting its role as, as the balancing, as, the, as a European power. And Biden seemed to be articulating this when he took office, but he hasn't really followed up with any real steps. So I, I don't think the EU functions the way it should or the way some people believe it should. But that's, again, not the EU's fault. That's the way it, it was not ever, in fact, designed to be anything more than an organization which helped return peace to Europe after World War II. It really is the American role, and we have not done well in that role in recent years, I'm sorry to say. And that's going to, it's probably one of the reasons why Putin feels so uh, energetic at the moment is because he has seen that the United States won't counter him if he, if he moves. I think you know all of us hope that that the diplomatic um, measures that are being undertaken at the moment will be successful. But but particularly from what you just said, you know there's really a lack of of leverage um, that we have to ensure the success of of diplomacy at the moment. And right. and and Angela Stent um, poses a, a question in the Q and A. She she writes, if there were to be an invasion. Which measures would Germany and the United States agree on? Which kind of sanctions? How would they coordinate the proportionality of the response depending on the nature of the incursion? Um, I think this is a, a critical question and, and would love to hear each of your takes on, on where the US and Germany could find alignment um, since we haven't been able to find the alignment on the leverage in the run up to this crisis. Yeah. So maybe I'll say something first. That's a very important question. Um, President Biden says regularly that he has this package of whammo sanctions, which will, will uh, make the Russians uh, 
take, take, pay, pay attention. But he's never said what they are. At least I haven't seen him say what they are. Maybe they've been leaked somewhere that I didn't read, but I haven't seen them. Uh, Germany, on the other hand, and I think this is, it's not a criticism, it's just a fact. Uh, German, the German economy since 1990 has, been, has not been very innovative. It has in fact built itself on its traditional iron and steel industries. These are industries which are rapidly losing their role in the world and rapidly losing their profitability for Germany. And so Germany, one of the reasons that Germany is so desirous of a more, shall we say, dialogue-based approach with China is because Germany has so many companies who sell lots of products in China. So I think that Germany will be less willing to undertake major, major sanctions. The, the issue which has come up has been the so-called SWIFT system, which is a, a very complex international payment system. The new CDU, CDU chief, Friedrich Merz, came out even before he was elected chairman of the party to say that he was against, and he was, of course, speaking for the German industry in this, he was against uh, taking any action against SWIFT. So I think it's going to be difficult, but the fact is, as Gada mentioned, that the EU has been able to come together and come up with quite serious packages of sanctions in the past. But the fact is, of course, that none of them really have hit as deeply into the Putin apparatus as some people would wish. And I think that if he makes even the smallest military action into the, the, into the places, by the way, where Russian troops already exist and where Russia has been conducting a war against Ukraine for eight years, even if he makes an even bigger movement, there is gonna be debate in the West because the Americans probably are going to be focusing on even deeper sanctions and not everyone in Europe is gonna be in favor of them. I mean, just to add perhaps um, one point which is crucial in the US-German uh, US, uh, sanctions debate, um, Nord Stream 2, um, and I, now everyone has sort of uh, to some extent been following this this debate um, and this was one part of the big transatlantic aspect of, of the rift that we have seen between Washington and Berlin that we had all these voices coming out of Berlin saying um, Nord Stream 2 is just an economic project and should be not on the table. So there has been sort of uh, relief when the chancellor and also the foreign minister confirmed that Nord Stream 2 will be on the table. But what is missing, and I think what makes the US-German discussion so complicated here is that just the statement that everything is on the table leaves a lot of wiggle room for Germany in case of an invasion. It raises the question that, that John already said that the president, the US president also alluded to, what if it is only sort of a minor incursion, if it is the acceptance of an independence declaration by the so-called People's Republic and a movement of Russian troops, official and formal movement of Russian troops, that would probably in the German public not create a big impression. And there we would have the Nord Stream discussion coming up again. Does this justify canceling Nord Stream 2? And Nord Stream 2 is such as I said, I think Germany has come sort of a long way to saying that it is on the table, but uh, it, there are strong economic interests in Nord Stream 2. Um, and it is also um, since the Trump years, Nord Stream 2 has also been framed as a question um, of Germany's sovereignty. So it has not only become a Russia and Ukraine issue, 
but uh, transatlantic and US issue where the feeling is that the United States is pressuring Germany and dictating Germany its energy policy. Um, and that is something which makes the conversation particularly complicated. And I think what is um, what can help in this conversation is what is happening right now. The United States seeking um, support for European energy supplies um, with Qatar, for instance, because it demonstrates to the discussion in the German public, this is not all about the United States pursuing their economic interests, but that there was a real security concern. And it would certainly be helpful if there were a little bit more details on what exactly um, Berlin would be thinking about when they say Nord Stream 2 is on the table. This is not something that has to be made public mm -hmm. because perhaps it is also useful to have it sort of a little bit in, in, in a vague uh, position towards Russia. But it would be helpful towards allies, especially in Washington, to make clearer when and how would we move on Nord Stream 2 in case of an incursion? And it was also help the case um, in Congress um, uh, because the Republicans, um, as far as I've been following this, have put quite a lot of pressure um, on sanctioning Nord Stream 2 immediately, not linked to an escalation in Eastern Ukraine. So I think this is, the apart from the discussion on SWIFT and how to pay for Russian energy deliveries, the Nord Stream 2 discussion is something where the visit of Olaf Scholz next week would be a good opportunity to reduce the wiggle room and give a little bit more concrete information to the US side on German plans. Certainly the, the reliance of Germany and, and other European countries um, on gas from Russia has made um, dealing with the situation in Ukraine that much more complicated um, and and that much more more difficult to parse. Um, and I think you're right. Many people are are looking at next week's visit to Washington to see if there is a little bit more clarity about about Germany's position. But one of our viewers is is curious about whether um, the the situation can change anytime soon given that Europe already faces difficulties in securing enough energy at a time when it's trying to make a transition to green energy. I mean, this is sort of Germany's energy conundrum at its core, having shut down nuclear power plants last year, shutting down more nuclear power plants this year, relying on brown coal um, as kind of a, a bridging fuel as it tries to make the transition to, to green energy. In conversations I've had with people over the last week or so, there's been a, a, a vehement no to Germany reconsidering nuclear power at this time. Um, so I guess my question to, to both of you is, um, how do you see the, the energy question unfolding and how much of an impact will that have um, on the current crisis with Russia? Um, well, it's gonna be unfolding probably you, you mentioned the um, criteria or the issues in a, in a fairly dramatic way. That is that there could be either major price increases or have been already in Europe or shortages. And that the, 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 the uh, arrangement that the United States has concluded with Qatar, which included, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, it was in the press today, designating Qatar as a special American ally. ally. I've never heard that title before, but there it is. It shows how important their gas supply is for the rest of the world. 
uh, Japan, for example, essentially lives off of uh, Qatarian gas. And so uh, this is going to be a major issue. And probably this is where Putin probably thinks he has some trump cards. But the fact is, of course, that there are alternatives, even as difficult as they may be. And if he moves, as we fear he might, it's going to be very difficult for anybody to do anything about Nord Stream 2, for example, to, to build it, I mean, or to, to open it. And it's going to be very difficult for Putin to negotiate any better deals. This, of course, puts pressure also on the pipelines which go through Ukraine, which are the, at the moment the current still transit route for, for a lot of Russian gas. So the energy thing, um, the questioner is very right. The energy thing is really almost at the core of, of everything looking a few months earlier, a few months down the road, I mean. And it could be that Putin thought that he had a beautiful trump card with the energy situation, which he's found out is not quite as simple as he thought it would be. And we, I think it's fair to say that Germany really has missed doing its homework when it comes to diversification of energy mm -hmm. sources. So there's no LNG terminal in Germany. And there was always this long-held belief that Russia will always be a reliable supplier of energy. It has been the narrative that even in Cold War times, the Soviet Union in the worst of crises has continued to deliver energy to Europe. So there's always this narrative that Moscow would not use energy as a political tool. And we've seen in the last months with the limited storages in Europe that there have been um, attempts to manipulate the prices through um, withdrawing further, uh, um, withholding further gas supplies to Europe. Um, so I think this is a change in thinking which has just started in Germany, seeing Russia not as a 100% reliable supplier of gas. And the question really is, if a crisis happens, whether Moscow would move to stop all the gas supplies to Europe, which would be quite a dramatic move, we have to say, and also a dramatic move for Moscow itself, because Moscow does rely, I mean, there are long-year contracts and Moscow does rely on the income it receives from its gas supplies. This is the, the reason why Russia keeps, keeps afloat and why Russia's economy keeps going. So shutting down all the gas supplies would be something which would obviously damage um, Russia itself, um, where sort of on the uh, uh, shutting down some of the supplies, there would be alternatives that could be mobilized for Germany and for Europe. But as John said, it would certainly come along with price hikes and, um, and, and uh, yeah, also probably public discontent about this measure. So let me ask one more sort of geopolitical question before bringing the conversation back to, to Germany and, and, and Germany's response. Um, and, and that is, from what I've been hearing from a, a number of, of observers of Russia, um, the expectation is that we're, we're kind of in a holding pattern right now and that there won't be any further aggression um, until after the Olympics, um, because Vladimir Putin will be visiting Beijing for the Olympics. Um, and, and actually one of our viewers writes um, and asks whether there's a possibility that behind the scenes, Putin and Xi are agreeing to coordinate um, some acts of aggression in Ukraine and Taiwan respectively at the same time um, later this month. And I guess I'd be, be curious to hear from both of you 
what your thoughts are. I mean, certainly my concern has been the world is focused on um, Ukraine at the moment and on, on Russia at the moment. Uh, and yet there are other hot spots. You know, we have to think about the missile tests in North Korea recently. Um, I was relieved to see that it looks like talk, talks with Iran might resume soon. There are obviously a lot of hot spots, and um, those hot spots are not necessarily getting the kind of attention that they need. Um, you know, for both of you, as, as people that, that watch uh, Russia, but also watch China, do you think that, that Putin and Xi might be thinking about coordinating um, some activities in Ukraine and Taiwan? Well, um, it could be. I, I personally probably I don't think so for a number of Chinese reasons, but uh, I think, uh, Steve, you put your finger uh, or your caller put your finger on a real issue. And that is that the West from the United States and Western Europe, NATO members essentially, but also other countries, have essentially neglected the worldwide strategic challenges which you went through in your remarks. Um, we have, for a whole lot of reasons, um, it had to do with defense budgets, it had to do with politics, it has to do with things such as environment and COVID and everything. In other words, we are not really up to speed, as we used to say, about uh, what's going on in the world. And we certainly are not unified, that is, the Western world. I sometimes get a little bit frustrated when I read, which I do a lot in the German press, of the Russian-American conflict over Ukraine. This is a European conflict, and it is, a, it is the uh, Russia trying to undermine the entire basis of the uh, European Union's security policy. Going back to 2003, they were talking about building a network of well-governed states uh, on our, our eastern and southern borders. So this is as much a Western issue as it is an American issue. We haven't spoken about it, but there was a great deal of almost emotion to the fact that Putin seemed to care only about talking with Biden and not with the Europeans. Mm -hmm. This has been changed a bit, but it still comes home with a strong dose of reality for, uh, for the Europeans that in the end, the only strategic power remains the United States. I think there's no question about that, but Europeans have allowed themselves, I think, to be um, shaken out of a doldrums or they went into a doldrums about security, which is now they're now being shaken out. It's not just Germany. I am as unhappy with Germany's response as anybody, but I joined Liana in saying this is not a German issue. This is not even a European issue. It's a Western issue. And the West has been asleep at the switch. I think there's no question about it. Uh, when President Obama said that Russia was only a regional power, he was technically correct, but he forgot that Russia was a global disruptor, a global disruptor with nuclear weapons. And, you know, I'll say this very openly, the Obama administration was a period of inactivity and lack of, of concentration on what our security interests were. Biden came in determined to change that. His first speech at the Munich Security Conference last year was an effort to change that. But he's found himself facing with realities. It's not so easy just to wave your hand and to have things change. Finally, I would point out that Biden has a very complex domestic political situation. And the interesting thing is that Schultz's domestic situation is not much different than Biden's. For every Bernie Sanders that there is in the United States, there's a Munzelberg in Germany. And uh, so 
And Schultz has to take care of his left wing, just like Biden has to take care of his. And you can see what a real torture it's been for Biden to take care of his left wing. And I'm sure that um, Schultz is going to have the same issue. Yeah, I think I would underline the point that John just made. I think it's not only a lazy framing that this is a Russia-US conflict, but it's also a dangerous framing in some parts of the German debate. It's not sort of dominating the German debate, but it's there in some parts of the German debate because it suggests that Germany sort of can come back to a middle position in Europe where it basically mediates between the United States and Russia, which is not what Germany's position has been after 1945, the long road towards the West, sort of Germany being anchored in the West. But to come back about the question of, of um, the Olympics, um, I think there has, there has been a lot of um, reading of tea leaves about when exactly will the invasion happen? What about the mud in Eastern Ukraine? Um, uh, does it have to be frozen territory for Russia to move on? So if looking at it from Moscow's perspective, I would probably try to find a time that no one expects and has been discussing so far um, to if, if I would want to move along. And what is also interesting is the level of um, cooperation between Russia and China, which has certainly increased since 2014, since the last crisis that we've seen. And we've also seen this in the public statements coming out from the Kremlin, for instance, about the US and NATO responses to the draft treaty suggestions from Moscow, where the official line was, we will talk about this with our partners, including China, which very obviously tries to create an impression of China there being on, on, Russia's, on Russia's side. And also the UN Security Council discussion, um, we have seen uh, in, the, in the UN discussion, we have seen that China uh, seems to be not too far away from Russia's position here, sees an interest in supporting Russia's position. That doesn't mean that Russia and China will coordinate and on Taiwan or Ukraine, I think that's too, too, too far away. And obviously there are also a lot of difficult issues between Russia and China, but this crisis can really become from the perspective of Beijing, a great opportunity for everyone being distracted from the initial goal of the Biden administration to forge a Western approach towards China and being drawn back to Europe and um, enhancing stability in Europe. So whatever scenario, we will see in the next weeks one very likely outcome, and we see it already now, is an increased presence of the United States in Europe, a military presence, a political presence, which has not been the plan, as John said, of the Biden administration, and which will bind resources that will make it more difficult to address China more strategically. Um, as the West and as the transatlantic alliance. Um, so I think we are at the moment very much focused on short-term crisis management, but we will have to start thinking about beyond the crisis. What does this mean in broader terms for the strategic priorities of the West? Um, because we now have both at the same time, Russia and China as a, as a challenge. Thank you, thank you both for that. Um, we are, are pretty much out of time, but I, I really would like to, to bring the conversation back to Germany if, if both of you have a, a couple of more minutes, um, because in our conversation so far, 
Liana, you, you talked a little bit about the divisions between, but also within the parties in the governing coalition. And John, you brought up the fact that the, the new head of the Christian Democratic Party um, also has his own position as far as, as Russia is concerned. Um, and so I think for many of us who, who follow Germany, we knew that one of Olaf Scholz's big challenge was going to be to keep the three coalition parties together and to deal with any, any splits even uh, between the parties. But now he's also dealing with some, some different opinions within the party and even within his own party. And so I'd, I'd like to ask you, Liana, whether you think that the Social Democrats, whether the SPD has a Russia problem because of the different viewpoints within the party about, about Russia. The SPD has delayed this discussion for too long. It has started in 2014, as I said, this process of disillusionment, which also included the SPD. And the SPD has too long adopted um, recipes from the past. So it has been too long about Willy Brandt and Detente and Eastern policy, which were all very important elements of policy in the past, but which might not fit entirely to the situation where we are right now. So it has been too much backwards looking to past lessons, applying these uncritically to, to the present. I do think that um, the chancellor himself and also other prominent figures of the social democratic camp, they have a very pragmatist position on this. And this is the tendency where the policy towards Russia is going just because Russia doesn't give anything to justify um, a more, uh, yeah, sort of a, 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 a softer approach towards Russia. And I think that's basically which will not leave it, give any other opportunity to basically all actors in Berlin to change the Russia policy because just the way Russia behaves, if it would sort of change, it would give a lot of um, food and incentive for those who argue we need to, uh, to, to do a reset with Russia. But as it is right now with hundreds of hundred thousand troops at Ukraine's border, it is just very difficult to come back to this sort of historic, a little bit nostalgic relationship with Russia. So I think the SPD as all other actors in Berlin is on the same path and will come to the same conclusions um, earlier or later. And maybe let me ask you, you both um, the same final question and, and starting with you, John, and, and, and then Liana, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. You know, we're, we're obviously um, seeing this mounting pressure um, coming from, from Moscow. And I'm, I'm curious as to whether you think um, Putin's actions can serve as a, as a real catalyst to sort of shift and refine German public opinion vis-a-vis -vis Russia, but also to help define Berlin's policy toward Russia. Mm -hmm. Well, I would like to, as a final comment, point out also, <clears throat> and this has directly to do with your question, Steve, that we are in the midst of a millennial upheaval. The world is changing completely. This crisis is a bad one. We really need to work hard to make it go as well as we can. But it is also the end of an era and not the beginning of an era. 
Russia is a very rapidly declining power. It keeps saying it's not, but it is. At the same time, Germany is a rapidly rising power. Even though its economic system may be a little bit outvoted, the advantages that Germany has in Europe and the world make it, and I've argued this in public before, so it's not anything new. I think Germany is the third most important country in the world right now. And so it is gonna be very, very difficult to combine all of these things. It is gonna be very, very difficult to bring the United States and Germany and other Western countries into the same direction. Germany's big competitors, as far as global uh, interests are concerned, are not the United States, but rather other Europeans. And with the difference between, say, the view of France and the view of Poland is couldn't be farther apart. So we're coming into an era of really major upheaval right now. And so is the opinion, public opinion in Germany going to change? Well, it already has changed quite a bit. But the European Union needs a, drastically needs a new narrative away from the peace process, as they call themselves, into the fact that they are a gathering of 500 million people in 27 very important countries and that they themselves have a role to play, but that geopolitically that role can only be played with the United States. This is something that's not, I heard, uh, I heard the, 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 the co-chairman of the SPD say the, exactly the same thing on German television last night. So this is not something that I thought up, but it's going to be difficult. And so I think that with all of the other issues that both Mr. Schultz has on his agenda and Joe Biden has on his agenda, really life and death issues for both our societies. We're gonna be faced with also foreign geopolitical challenges, which might strain our abilities to deal with them. So I'm not totally optimistic. I'm optimistic about the future, but I'm not optimistic about the near future because I think it's gonna be a very difficult phase. Thank you, John. Let, let me perhaps just add very quickly. I mean. Germany's foreign policy has always been slow and incremental. And let me quote the famous line of Helmut Schmidt, who said, well, whoever has visions should go to the doctors. So visionary policy is not something which is um, intrinsic for German or European foreign policy. But to end on a optimistic note, um, we do see changes in the German discourse on Nord Stream 2, on the role of the former chancellor, Gerhard Schröder, um, with Gazprom on defensive weapon deliveries. There is a discussion going on about defensive weapon deliveries, which might not change the position of the government, but there is a discussion going on. So we do see a shift, a slow shift, and it is very much created by Russia's actions, which again lead to the question, how strategic does Russia behave? Because in the end, it can end up with uh, a Europe and NATO much more stronger um, after Russia's actions than they have been before. Well, there's certainly um, an evolving debate in Berlin um, and one that is well worth watching. Uh, and of course, there is um, a lot to be watching out for uh, along the border with Ukraine. Um, and we'll just have to see how these events unfold. But John and, and Liana, from, from my standpoint, I'd like to thank you both for this incredibly thoughtful an insightful conversation. I've certainly learned a lot and I hope that our viewers have as well. And I'd like to, to thank our viewers for the, the many questions that you submitted. Uh, and Patrick Ryan, uh, thanks to you and to the Tennessee World Affairs Council for partnering with us to, to hold this event. You bet, thank Steve. You. Thank you.
it was a, a great conversation, wunderbar. Uh, thanks to uh, everyone for your insights and perspectives, and thanks to our audience for such probing questions. Uh, the conversation about the Ukraine crisis could go on all day. Uh, fortunately, Ambassador Kornblum has agreed to join us again in about two weeks for another conversation about uh, what's happening in that uh, region. Thanks to the American Council on Germany, and thanks to uh, uh, President uh, Steve Sokol for your excellent moderation of today's program. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to our German in America, Dr. Leanna Fix, and our American in Germany, Ambassador John Kornblum. Lastly, please consider supporting programs like this by contributing to the World Affairs Council at tnwac.org. And thank you to our new friends from the ACG Network, those joining us from the World Affairs Councils of America family and from our friends in the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Remember to sign up for our newsletter at tnwac.org to be alerted to our next conversation with Ambassador Kornblum and our other virtual programs. Please consider supporting programs by contributing at uh, that website. And you can find a recording of this program and a transcript at tnwac.org uh, and in our newsletter later today to share with your friends who missed this terrific program and for you to watch it again. Thank you again, John, Liana, and Steve. Thank Everyone you. Everyone be well.